And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We'll be in verses 7 to 19. Mark chapter 3, we'll be in verses 7 to 19. And so authority. You know, many people in society have authority, and it is limited to the position that they hold. You know, parents have authority over their children. A principal would have authority at their school. Referees have authority to officiate this game or that game. A jury, they have authority to decide a court case. And presidents, they have authority over the country for as long as they serve in that office. You see, in all these examples, the authority held is a derivative authority from God, and it's tied to the position that they hold. You see, only God has sovereign authority, and he has inherent authority because of who he is, because he is God. And in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus display this sovereign authority because he is the Son of God, because he is the Messianic King who brings near the kingdom of God. And we've seen him display this authority in, as he cast out demons, as he forgives sins and call people to follow him, and he does so much more. Well, this morning, we will see Jesus demonstrate his sovereign authority by curing the crowd and calling the twelve. And so please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strongly warned them not to make him known. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. You may be seated. So our big idea this morning is this. The demonstration of Jesus' authority to cure the crowd and call the twelve should lead us to trust him. I'll say it again. The demonstration of Jesus' authority to cure the crowd and call the twelve should lead us to trust him. And in our passage, we're going to see two scenes. The first scene is we will see Jesus cured the crowd. And the second scene, Jesus called the twelve. Jesus cured the crowd and Jesus called the twelve. So our first point, our first scene, Jesus cured the crowd. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. It says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, 
and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and the round Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus and his disciples, they left to the sea, but they weren't alone. You see, a large crowd from all over the region followed Jesus. Mark uses the phrase large crowd three times in two verses to convey how big this crowd was. You see, this was a humongous crowd, large crowd from six different cities, and they all came to him. This was a diverse crowd. You see, if something like this happened today, it'll be like people from Memphis, Arkansas, Mississippi, and maybe even Atlanta coming in to pack out the FedEx form in order to see a Justin Timberlake concert. That's kind of how it was, except it's not JT, but it's Jesus. And we see that they all came to him. Friends, Jesus is very popular now. The word about him has spread all over. You see, wherever he went, he wouldn't be alone, at least not for long. Look at verse 8 again. We see the reason they came. It says, the large crowd came to him, came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. You see, news about his mighty acts have spread all over. It has spread everywhere like wildfire. Everybody was telling everything, everybody about everything Jesus did. They were like, man, I saw Jesus cast out demons by speaking. Or some may have said, man, yo, I heard he healed people of various diseases. Or word on the street is that he had healed a leper by touching him. Or say, y'all, Jesus made a paralytic man walk. You see, they were talking about, the, about what Jesus has done, and this news has spread all over, which is the fitting application for us this morning. Friends, are we spreading the news about what Jesus has done? You see, our our non-believing family members, friends, co-workers, and neighbors hearing from us about the work of Jesus Christ, because we have better news to share than Jesus physically healing people. You see, Jesus not only has the ability to heal, but he has the ability to save through the proclamation of the gospel. And that very message is what we should be sharing with others, because they need to hear about Jesus. And friends, us sharing doesn't necessarily guarantee that they would come to Christ. Just as in this passage, people hearing the news about Jesus didn't guarantee that they would come to him. But the Lord can use our proclamation to lead people to come. You see, people, people need to hear about Jesus because they need him. Whether they know it or not, they need to hear. So may we share. Look at verse 10, we will see why they came. It says, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. You see, they came to Jesus for one purpose, to be healed by him. They had diseases, and they bombarded him in order to be healed. You see, they were attracted to Jesus, but they were attracted to him for the wrong reasons. You see, they knew something about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. You see, they didn't know that he is the Son of God and that his mighty works authenticated his message, which should have led to repentance and faith in Jesus. But now, you see, they only saw him as a miracle worker. They only saw him as their fixer-upper. You see, they saw him as a healer who could heal them of their diseases. They only saw him as that. And sadly, 
this still happens today. Sadly, sometimes it's proclaimed that Jesus is only the healer, but it's not proclaimed that he is the Savior. Sadly, people come to him, and they only come only wanting to be healed by him. What it looks like today, it looks like this. They will probably say words like, Jesus, will you physically heal me? But they won't say, Jesus, will you save me? It's only, Jesus, will you fix my marriage? But it's never, Jesus, forgive me and make me new. Friends, Jesus certainly cares about one's health. He certainly cares about our marriages and our lives, but let's not confuse what he can do for what he came to do. You see, he can heal, but he came to save his people from their sins. Look at verse 9. It says this, Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. You see, the crowd, they pressed in and bombarded Jesus so much so that he had to come up with a safety plan. Man, Jesus, what he did, he socially distanced himself from the crowd. But he didn't socially distance because of the coronavirus. No, he socially distanced because he ain't trying to get crushed. You see, when it says that they were pressing toward him, the Greek word is they were falling upon or falling over. And so this large crowd, they are falling upon one another, and they are falling upon Jesus, trying to get to him in order to be healed. You see, he was unsafe, so he had to come up with a plan. And though the crowds are coming, and though they are trying to be healed, look what Jesus did. Verse 10, it says, since he, had, he came up with this plan because he had healed many. Beloved, Jesus healed many of them. He cured them of their diseases. You see, he did for them what they could not do for themselves. And he has authority over sickness and disease. Friends, Jesus is greater than any doctor. The church where I came from growing up, they would say that he is a doctor on the sickbed. And he is that because he has authority to heal because he is the king, the Lord who brings near the kingdom of God. And friends... Jesus still has this authority today. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we shouldn't just go to him when we're sick. But beloved, if we are sick, know that we can go to him. If we're sick, diseased, our health is declining, know that we can go to Jesus. We can pray for healing with faith and genuinely trust him to heal us. Now, us going to him in this way doesn't mean that he will heal us. He's not obligated to. He may or he may not. If he heals us, we should praise him for it. If he doesn't, we should trust him. May we know that as we pray to him, if he answers no, we must remember that he is a good God and that he is gracious and his grace is sufficient to help us in our weakness. Friends, know that when Jesus answers no to your prayers, it is just as loving as when he answers yes. Know that he is always for our good, the good of his people, and that's in the yes and the no. Now, if he doesn't heal us, that doesn't mean that it won't be difficult. Pain and disease is very hard, and there'll be many trials, and it causes a lot of grief, but we 
In our suffering, we must have an eternal perspective. We must view our suffering as Scripture views them. It calls it light and momentary in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed. And so if we're sick, health declining, eyes hurting, diseased, may we go to the Lord Jesus and trust him and look to him. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. You see, some in the crowd came to Jesus. They were possessed by demons. Now, these unclean spirits, when they saw Jesus, they immediately recognized him. It's kind of like how you would immediately recognize your parents from afar if you saw them. Well, when they saw Jesus, they didn't have any doubt that it was him. And look, when they, look what they did when they saw him. The first thing it said that they did is that they fell down. They fell down before Jesus. You see, they feared Jesus because they know that he is greater than them. You see, only the inferior bows or falls before the superior. And the thing is, they are no match for the Lord Jesus. But not only did they fall down, look what else they did. They cried out, you are the son of God. They declared Jesus' authority. Well, they confessed it. You see, they know exactly who Jesus is. The ironic thing is that the crowds didn't know who Jesus is, but the demons did. And, and confessing Jesus' identity, what's happening here is that it was an attempt to render Jesus harmless because it was believed that knowledge of a person meant mastery over them. But boy, was they wrong because you can't master the master. Look what Jesus did in verse 12. It says, and he strongly warned them not to make him known. You see, Jesus rebuked them and commanded their silence. And by this, he demonstrated his sovereign authority over demons. You see, no one has ever talked to a demon like this, and the demon actually submitted. And the thing we got to remember is that, man, Jesus and these demons, they ain't friends. They're enemies. And I've never seen anyone have this type of authority over their enemy. You know, growing up, I used to talk a whole lot, talk too much, honestly. And in fact, I talk so much that my mom, when I'm talking so much, she'd tell me, she'd be like, Joshua, be silent. And y'all, y'all know what I would do? I'd shut up in a heartbeat. Won't talk at all because she's my mom. She has authority over me. Now, growing up, if my enemy was to tell me to be silent, y'all, I am going to keep on talking because it's my enemy. You got no authority over me. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, like, man, think about it. If your enemy told you to be silent, you're probably going to keep talking. If you were to tell your enemy to shut up, they'd probably keep talking. In fact, what's going to happen is they're going to rebel and it will probably escalate into a fight. But that's not what happens with the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus, Joshua Chapman version, he tells them to shut up and they don't rebel, but they submit. You see, he has authority over his adversaries because he is the son of God who brings the kingdom of God. You see, the demons, they may oppose Jesus, but they can't impose their way on Jesus. And in fact, what we see right here is a defeat of the enemies which points to a greater defeat when on the cross, 
And through the resurrection, Jesus would defeat all of his enemies. Satan, sin, and the world. The flesh. And one day, he would destroy all of his enemies. But y'all, did y'all notice something in verse 12? It says, he would strongly warn them not to make him known. You see, notice that Jesus didn't de- did not deny his identity. He is the Son of God. He is the one who eternally existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You see, the world was created through him and for him. He is the Son of God in human flesh. And in fact, Mark confessed it. God the Father declared it. The demons knew it, and Jesus proved it. The question is for us, do we believe it? You see, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I want you to know that this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. The Scriptures testify, and this is actually how he viewed himself. He is the Savior of the world who came to save sinners through his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. My challenge to you, I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ because life depends on how one responds to Jesus. And he came to save sinners. So turn and trust in him. Now, Some may be wondering why Jesus doesn't want his identity to be revealed. Why did he hush the demons? Well, I can give us two answers, two quick ones. One, we got to remember the demons actually oppose Jesus. And so this confession is not from faith and is not with joy. But secondly, we must also remember that right now Jesus didn't want to be misunderstood. You see, his identity will be directly tied to his work of salvation. And he hasn't explicitly revealed what he came to do, which was to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, he temporarily wanted his identity concealed. But y'all know that it wouldn't remain concealed. In fact, he would command his disciples to be his witnesses, which we'll see a little bit more of that in the next section. And so in our first scene that we've seen. We've seen Jesus cure the crowd, but now we see Jesus called the twelve. Look at verse 13. It says, Jesus went up a mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. Y'all, Jesus going up on the mountain is very important because mountains were usually a place of revelation. Think about the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, or the sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 or even the Mount of Transfiguration. And on this mountain, Jesus, he called the disciples that he wanted. He authoritatively and effectually called them because he has this authority. And they couldn't resist his call. In fact, they properly responded and came to him. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And so Jesus, he appointed 12 to the office of apostles. Now, this too is important because when you hear the number 12, we should be thinking about the 12 tribes of Israel who were God's holy people and were to make God's name known throughout the earth. Well, what's happening here? 
What's happening here is that these 12 apostles will be the foundation of the church who has the responsibility of making God's name known throughout the earth by going out and proclaiming the gospel. And so Jesus, he made them apostles. Well, somebody may wonder, well, what is an apostle? What apostles are, they are specific followers of Jesus who have been called by and sent by Jesus Christ. And they have authority to speak on behalf of Christ. And so we see these 12. And we also see the responsibilities that that they were to have. It says that they were to be with him and to be sent out by him. First, to be with him. You see, Jesus called them into a unique relationship with himself. He first wanted them to be with him. And this relationship, what we see is the relationship precedes work. And it is the same for us because Jesus loves us and wants us to be with him. You see, we were, when we were saved, we were saved into a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ when we repented and believed the gospel. And then we were given a work. See, the relationship precedes the work. And here we see the apostles, their preparation for ministry, it was to be relational. They learned from him as they were with him. They were with him when he preached. They were with him as he cast out demons and interacted with the lost and interacted with the Samaritans and the Gentiles and even his interactions with the religious leaders. You see, this was literally life-on-life discipleship. And friends, what an example it is for us in our own personal discipling relationships here in the congregation. May we do life together and not limit our discipleship to a weekly transference of biblical content. You see, as important as that is, may we be committed to doing life together as well. We can run errands together. We can serve together. We can have people over in our home, watch how we do family worship clean together, all these types of things, just doing life together and being with each other and seeing how one another follow Jesus in our own spheres of life. How does our relationship with Jesus impact what we do in our homes, impact how we interact with the lost, impact how we interact with others? First, may we disciple one another and talk about Jesus as we're doing life together. But not only were they to be with him, they were also to be sent out by him. As a, and as they were sent out, they would do two things. They were to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. First, they were to preach. And this is what they should prioritize because this is what Jesus prioritized. You see, he began his earthly ministry preaching the gospel. And they were to go out and they were to preach the exact same message. You see, preaching the gospel takes priority. It is of first importance. And as you read the remainder of the New Testament, you will see the prioritization of preaching because it is what it is what God uses to save people. In fact, God built his church through the preaching of the gospel. And as they preached, they were to faithfully, clearly and authoritatively preach the gospel. In the words of the late African-American pastor Lemuel Haynes, they were to preach the gospel with plainness and clarity. But not only were they to preach, it says that Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. You see, this authority was given to them. Only Jesus has sovereign authority to cast out demons. 
And he has the authority to share this authority to cast out demons with whom he wills. And it's exactly what he did. And it's exactly what they did. If you look in Mark chapter 6, and if you read um, the book of Acts after Jesus has ascended and commissioned the apostles, this is exactly what they did. They preached Christ, and they cast out demons, and they started churches. And friends, if we combine all of this, as we combine their ministry of preaching the gospel and casting out demons, we'll see that, that their ministry resembled the ministry of Jesus. You see, he preached the gospel, and he cast out demons. And what's happening here is that Jesus is training them for ministry for after he leaves. Like how a parent who would train their child for life outside the home and how to live when the parent goes on and and dies. This is exactly what Jesus is doing, except he didn't die, just die, but he resurrected from the grave. You see, Jesus trained his apostles to continue his mission of the advancement of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And as they preached, people repented believed, and they were brought into the kingdom. You see, the apostles, they were very important because they laid the foundation for the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So they preached Christ and they planted churches. And since we're on the topic of apostles, I just want to make it abundantly clear that the office of apostleship has ceased. It ended when the last apostle died. There's no apostolic succession. People nowadays may call themselves apostles, but they're not. No one in this life right now meets the requirements to serve as an apostle. You see, Acts chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, makes known the, the requirements to serve as one of the 12. It says that they must be a man who followed Jesus from the baptism of John and who was an eyewitness to his bodily resurrection. No one meets those standards. Someone may wonder, well, what about James and John? They didn't meet all those standards. Well, I would say, man, Jesus actually appeared to them after he resurrected. He chose them to be apostles, and the other apostles recognized it. But friends, though there aren't any apostles today, the Lord hasn't left his church without leaders. You see, he has given elders to the church to shepherd the flock. In fact, as you read the book of Acts, you will see that the apostle Paul, he appointed elders in the church. And the elders were to devote themselves to the public preaching and teaching of God's word and shepherding the flock. You see, elders, we are to preach the word. But we are also to oppose the work of Satan, the works of Satan. You see, we don't see in Scripture where Jesus gave pastors or the church at large authority to cast out demons. But where you land on your miraculous, or your, where you land on miraculous sign gifts, whether they continue or have ceased, will impact your thoughts on Christians casting out demons today. And friends, I'm not here to debate that. However, what is not debatable is the reality that the church must adamantly oppose the works of Satan. What what does it look like today? Well, in light of our country, take the sin of racism. This sin is satanic. It is the dehumanization of people based upon the color of one's skin. It is to perceive one ethnic group as superior, which justifies oppression of others. Friends, racism devalues what God values. Because God equally values all of human life. 
And rather than complying and conforming to the patterns of the world, the church should boldly confront this sin with gospel truth. And we should live in the truth of loving all people of all ethnicities. And as pastors, we are to lead the church in this. But not only racism, but we must oppose abortion, the sexual revolution of transgenderism and same-sex marriage. And I'm just naming a couple of things. Friends, as the church, we are to oppose the works of Satan, live in gospel truth, and preach the gospel. That's what we are to do. Look at verses 16 and 19. It says that he appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And so here are the names of the twelve, and that phrase, the twelve, it refers to these twelve apostles, and it comes up very often in the Gospel of Mark. And here we see first, Simon is listed, which Jesus gave the name Peter, which means rock. And many people believe that he was the leader of the twelve. You see, Peter was the one who confessed Jesus' identity. He preached at Pentecost. He was the first to preach to Gentiles. But then next we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and and Jesus gave the name Boanerges. This term, it is in Aramaic. And Mark, he gives the explanation of the meaning of it, which means sons of thunder. You see, it was believed that they received this name because of their zeal and fiery outbursts. One time in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was rejected, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? crazy. Just pop off at the mouth. But Jesus rebuked them. (laughs) And though they they received this name, Boanerges, they would be changed by the grace of God. So much so that the apostle John would write a love letter called 1 John. The one who went from popping off at the mouth, asking, should we call down fire, wrote a letter exhorting the people of God to walk in love. This the transforming work of the grace of God. And then we also see Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew. Then we see Matthew. Matthew, he was the same person as Levi, who was called um, earlier in chapter 2. This is the tax collector. And then we also see Simon the Zealot. This is a Jewish nationalist, nationalist who wanted to overthrow Rome. And then he concludes with Judas Iscariot. He is the one who betrayed Jesus. And so these were the 12 apostles, and they were common men. They weren't the religious leaders, and in fact, they would have been rejected by the religious leaders. Yet Jesus wanted them and called them. They didn't have seminary degrees or prestigious credentials. They were common, ordinary men whom the Lord used as they were faithful. And as we see this list, this should encourage us Because we don't have to be the best and the brightest or extraordinary. We don't need seminary degrees, though they're helpful. We just need to be faithful. Faithful to being with Jesus, his people, and being faithful to sharing Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. And as we do this, God will use ordinary people and the ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things. So may we be faithful. But also notice in this 12, you see diversity. 
the diversity of the apostles. They were all Jews, but four of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector, and another a zealot. What would they have in common? Absolutely nothing, probably. They have nothing in common, and yet Jesus united them. Though they were different, they grew to love one another and do ministry together. Friends, this is unity amidst diversity, and it's a foretaste of the unity amidst diversity in the church. You see, this is exactly what Jesus has accomplished through his death on the cross. You see, through the death of Jesus Christ, he has united all people, Jew and Gentile, and reconciled us to God through his death. You see, in the church, true unity amidst diversity is not just a gospel aspiration, but it's a result of what Jesus Christ has achieved through his death and resurrection. And this is what we ought to pursue here at NBC. Friends, are you pursuing this at NBC? Do you have genuine relationships with people who don't look like you? People who aren't in the same season of life as you? People who have different interests than you? Friends, is our dinner table diverse ethnically, generationally, and life stage? What about the members that we check in with? What about our discipleship group? Does it consist of people who are like us? Or are there people who are different than us? You see, true unity amidst diversity in the church, it takes effort and intentionality. And we need God's grace. We need God's grace because the thing is, diversity in the church is not just a colorful Sunday. And unity amidst diversity isn't just cordially speaking to one another on a Sunday morning. But it's having real relationships with members in the church who are different than one another. And I know that we don't have much diversity in our congregation, but we must actively pursue unity amidst the diversity that we do have. For as the gospel has the power to unite a diversity of people, so may we actively pursue to live in unity amidst our diversity. Friends, may our unity amidst diversity be like a mosaic, a ton of different pieces that are brought together in the name of Jesus Christ. This unity amidst diversity, what it does, it testifies to the power of the gospel that when the people of Memphis see our church, they see the power of the gospel at work. Like, why is it that these people who seemingly don't have anything in common love one another and genuinely love one another, not forsaking their culture, not trying to assimilate, but genuinely embracing one another? That testifies to the power of the gospel. And NBC, may we pursue that and pray for that and labor towards that end. Conclude in verse 19 with one of the apostles. You see, though all are apostles, one was a traitor. Mark makes known, it says, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. You see, Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas, who was called by God, to, called by Jesus to be an apostle, he was a friend of Jesus, yet he betrayed Jesus. And through this, this recognition, this, ad, this admission, this explanation that Judas is the one who betrayed him, what this is, is we see the shadow of the cross getting bigger. You see, we have another piece to the puzzle of how Jesus will be put to death. 
We saw in chapter 2, verse 20, that Jesus himself said that the groom will be taken away. We saw in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees plotted how they might kill him. Well, they'd get their hands on Jesus to have him crucified because Judas betrayed him. Yet God providentially used this betrayal as the means to get his son on the cross to pay the ransom for the sins of all who would trust in him. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave. He has commissioned his apostles to share this message around the world, that hearers may repent and believe and be saved. And beloved, we get to share this message now as we await the return of Jesus. For then we will be with him for all of our days. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness in sending your son. God, and as John prayed, as we see in the scriptures, your purposes will not be frustrated. Not even Judas's portrayal can thwart your purpose in saving people. And in fact, you used it to get your son on the cross to atone for the sins of all who would trust in Jesus. God, we praise you for the transforming work of the gospel and his authority to forgive sins and save all who would repent and believe in him. Father, we pray that we would trust Jesus, that we would look to him in hope, that we would rejoice in him, and that we would proclaim him as we preach the gospel. God, may we walk in unity. May we love him with all our hearts, and may we long for his imminent return. Father, we pray all of this in his name. Amen.